The Gospel of Matthew begins the Christmas story with these words. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. But he doesn't start his account of Jesus' life with the story of his birth. He begins with a genealogy, showing us that the thread that ties together all of history is the presence of Emmanuel, God with us. David, the greatest of Israel's kings, had an affair with Uriah's wife Bathsheba, then had Uriah killed in an attempt to cover it up. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz sacrificed one of his own sons, imitating the religious practices of the nations surrounding Judah. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Despite the great faithfulness of his father, Manasseh led God's people to worship false gods. Manasseh, the father of Amos. Amos, the father of Josiah. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. The full story reveals that he always has been and always will be. God with us from the beginning to the end. Well, good morning. It's good to see you. Merry Christmas. Let's, let's take a moment and pray, and then we'll jump into uh, Matthew chapter 1, verses 6 to 11. God, thank you for the opportunity to come together and worship this morning. Lord, thank you for the chance to be together as a church family. God, to do so freely and joyfully. Lord, I pray that our time this morning would make Jesus look great. God, I pray that our time together this morning, God, would be one of joyful celebration, the birth of Christ. God, I pray our time this morning would be one that points our hearts to the reality that in love, you sent your son as a sacrifice for us. And that because of that, God, we can be made right with you. Lord, I pray that of, of all that happens here this morning, that that reality stands out. Lord, that it, it screams in all that we do, whether looking at scripture or singing songs. God, would we make much of the fact that Jesus Christ came, that he might save his people from their sin. God, we pray these things in his matchless name. Amen. There's, there's maybe not a better uh, ringing endorsement for the importance of, of reading the Old Testament than this genealogy that's at the beginning of Matthew. Because as you work your way through it, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, some of the names that are listed elicit for you immediate uh, memories of who those people were in the Old Testament. If you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament, then the names at the beginning of Matthew are just names. I had a family within our church a couple of months ago hand me after service 
um, the Avengers Infinity War. They just handed it to me and they said, you need to watch this. And I, I, you know, I have a, like a general, superhero movies aren't like my main thing in life. And so I have a general framework for the Marvel universe. And I knew that before this particular movie, there were a whole host of other Marvel movies that I had not seen. I wasn't sure how many though. So before I watched Infinity War, I went to IMBD so I could figure out how many movies I was missing up to that point. And this was the list. The Incredible Hulk, Iron Man 2, The Avengers, Iron Man 3, Guardians of the Galaxy, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, Avengers Age of Ultron, Ant-Man, Captain America Civil War, Spider-Man Homecoming, Doctor Strange, Thor Ragnarok, and Black Panther. Those were all the ones I hadn't seen. And so I thought, when I pop this in to watch this, which I'm going to do, I'm not going to have any clue about who most of the people are in this movie other than the fact that I know what their characters look like from drawings and whatnot. The backstory matters. And I had no idea about any of the backstory. Infinity War was great. It was fine. I I think it probably would have meant more if I understood the entirety of what was happening and everything that had led up to it. It's the same when we flip to the beginning of Matthew. We read this genealogy. We jump into the story of Jesus Christ, and it is magnificent, and it is wonderful. And we celebrate the birth of Jesus at the start of, or at the, the end of every calendar year in December, We recognize that. We make a really big deal out of it. But if you want a true grasp of who Jesus is, exactly why he came, what it is that he did, and the full significance of what he did, it requires some understanding of the Old Testament. It requires knowing a little bit about what gave rise to Jesus. And so Matthew begins with this long genealogy where he walks through all of these generations that led to the birth of Jesus Christ. And that genealogy shows us a few things in general, and then some deeper reflection allows us to see a little bit more. And so that's what we're doing as we run ourselves up to Christmas Eve tomorrow. Last week, I gave a list of four reasons why this genealogy is important. I just want to run through those again in case you weren't with us. The first is that this genealogy shows us that the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, is historical fact. It's not human imagination. These names uh, of all these individuals before the birth of Jesus, they're real people. You can look them up when they lived and died, what they did. You can look them up in the Bible, but you can also look them up in extra biblical sources many times, especially this middle chunk of the list that we're working with this morning. This historical fact shows us that the gospel is good news. It's not a fairy tale. It's a biography. This This person, Jesus, was a real individual. The gospel is a declaration of that good news. It's not a recommendation. It's not advice. It's not something that might be good to consider. It's historical fact. The genealogy also underscores for us that there's this new creation happening, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It was the genesis of the earth. In the beginning of Matthew, uh, chapter one, verse one, says an account of the genealogy, the genesis of Jesus the Christ. It's God doing something new. Now that new thing has been the plan since eternity past, but it comes with this new start at the birth of Jesus Christ. This genealogy also underscores the fact that Jesus is the Christ. He is the hope of the Jews, the son of David. He's the hope of the Gentiles, everybody that's not Jewish, because he's the son of Abraham. He's 
come to rescue and save and lead and redeem the Jewish people. He's come to rescue and save and lead and redeem all the nations of the earth. And then last, the genealogy reminds us that God is guiding history, that everything that's happened from Abraham and before that all the way up to Jesus Christ and after that has happened under God's watchful eye, under his masterful conducting, that God's not like a spectator at a symphony just watching in joy as things play themselves out on stage. He's the conductor. He brings about what he wants, when he wants it, in just the right amount, with just the right volume in order to create the masterpiece that he has in mind. And at a certain point, what the Gospels tell us, at just the right time, as Galatians says, God in Jesus Christ says, it's time for me to play. I'm entering into my creation. We're in the process of taking a closer look at the names themselves that fall in this genealogy. What can we learn about Jesus, the story of his birth, his life, his person, and our response to him by doing a bit of reflecting on the individual names that are presented in Matthew chapter 1? Last week, we looked at the first six verses, and in those six verses are some of the great heroes and memorable stories of the Old Testament. Their acts of faith and obedience model for, are models for us thousands of years later. They show us that life's greatest triumphs, no matter how wonderful our life might be, it has ultimate significance because God is the one guiding those events. That God has been with us from the very beginning. And so the great faith of Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or uh, Jesse and his sons and even the great acts of David, that those have significance because God is the one working in them and guiding them forward. The next group starting in verse 6, is the polar opposite. This grouping of names comes from what is one of the darkest periods in Israel's history. Whereas the first group issued us this amazing kind of challenge that we can search for the truth, that we can submit to the Lord, that we can sing of His presence and of His greatness and of His glory, and that there's significance and meaning in those things for the individuals in the Old Testament and for you personally because God's with us. This group shows us that failure is not final because God is with us. If you think your family tree is a little bit wonky, a little bit messed up, it really holds no candle to the individuals that are in this chunk of Jesus' lineage. A faithful Jewish individual who read through this list of a genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 would have looked at the names in the first six verses and said to themselves, you know what? Obviously, Jesus would come from this line. Look at how great these individuals are. And then they would have read the second chunk of names and would have thought to themselves, it's kind of amazing that Jesus would come from this particular line because these people were so messed up. We're not going to look at all of the names here from the second half of verse 6 down to the end of verse 11, but I do want to point out a few, and I want to give a reminder. This was a quote that we read last week, and it holds just as much truth this week as it did last week, and it's from Tim Keller. It's this, that the grace of God is so pervasive that even the begats of the Bible are dripping with God's mercy. Let's look at a few of the names here. The first is David. The second grouping of names in Matthew's genealogy begins with one of the Old Testament's most famous individuals. He was the greatest of all of Israel's kings. He was 
plucked out of the field while he was tending his father's sheep and he was anointed king and then he went on and he slayed Goliath and subdued the Philistines and brought about a military presence and peace to the nation of Israel that ushered in security unlike they had ever experienced before. And following all of those events, God made this covenant or this promise to David. It takes place in 2 Samuel verse 17, or chapter 7, excuse me. And he said this, the Lord himself will make a house for you. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. And yet for all of this, David is equally well known for what took place just four chapters after that promise. In 2 Samuel 11, David has an affair with a woman named Bathsheba, and then subsequently has her husband Uriah murdered in order to cover it up. What we can learn with a little bit of reflection on David is that Sin does not stifle the sovereignty of God. God made his covenant with David in full knowledge of what was to come. David's moral failure does nothing to overthrow overthrow the eternal sovereignty of God. God made a promise to David that someone would sit on his throne forever and ever and ever. And then just a few years later, David has one of the most famous incidents of sin that the Old Testament accounts for us. And God was not surprised at all. That failure is not final because God is with us. In fact, at his death, years after that incident with Bathsheba, David reminds his son Solomon that someone from their family will sit on the throne forever. It was a promise from God. And in his sovereignty, God was going to bring it about. In Jesus, the son of David, that promise comes to fruition. The sovereign king of the universe had planned it that way from the very beginning, and David's sin did nothing to stifle it. And the same is true in your life. We're all marked by the same sin that caused David to have his incident with Bathsheba and Uriah. Your sin may display itself in different ways, but there it is, lurking not so very deep under the surface of whatever veneer we attempt to cover it up with. And the greatness of Christmas is found in the fact that Jesus is the assurance that our sin is not final. Laying there in the manger is the presence of the Savior who came to save his people from their sin. Failure is not final because of Emmanuel, God With us. The next individual in the genealogy is Solomon, David's son. Solomon's the wisest man that ever lived, and yet he was incredibly reckless in the way that he lived. And his recklessness did not ruin the reign of God. Solomon built the temple of the Lord. He reigned over uh, the era of Israel's greatest peace and prosperity. There was no war during the time of Solomon. David had taken care of all of that during his reign. And Solomon ushered in this incredible era of wealth and prosperity and peace for the entire Israelite generation and yet for our Israelite nation. And yet for all of his wisdom, he gets caught in reckless folly, living in a way that's completely opposed to the will of the Lord. Solomon takes a huge harem of wives and concubines from a host of different nations, something that was explicitly forbidden by the Lord. In fact, two things that are explicitly forbidden by the Lord there. In turn, he opens himself up to falling into idolatry, the worship of something other than the Lord. And he does exactly what God said he would do, exactly what God says an individual would do if they married outside of the Israelite people, and that's that he begins to adopt 
the religious practices of his foreign wives. And yet, his failure is not final. Solomon's folly does not catch God off guard. It does not knock God off the throne. God is still with us. He's with his people. He's unfolding his plan. And Solomon's reckless living does not ruin that rule of God. The same is true in your life. We're all guilty of various degrees of reckless living. We're all guilty of going to a number of people at various different times and asking for wisdom and getting the same wisdom in response from all of those various people and then doing the exact opposite of what they advised us to do. We're all guilty of searching scripture for the way it is that we're supposed to live and seeing very clearly how it is that God has told us and laid out for us to live and then doing the exact opposite. And that recklessness, that folly does nothing to ruin the reign of the Lord. Sometimes we're the victim of another person's reckless living and pain comes into our lives because of the bad decision that someone else has made. Those moments of pain can be incredibly acute, whether our own foolishness and recklessness caused it or whether someone else's has intruded into our lives and caused us pain, but they do nothing to ruin the reign of the Lord. Solomon's descent into sin does nothing to stop the will of God from bringing about the Savior, Emmanuel, God with us. Solomon's son is Rehoboam. He's the third on this list. Rehoboam is betrayed by someone else who wants to be king. That individual's name was Jeroboam. And the disappointment that he must have felt had to have been incredibly deep. But disappointment does not determine the direction of God. There's this coup that takes place within the Israelite nation. And the situation becomes so bad that the people of Israel split themselves into two separate nations. Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Rehoboam is the first king of Judah. Jeroboam becomes the first king of Israel. And imagine the disappointment. You're slated to be king. It's been that way since the day you were born. And when your moment arrives to ascend to the throne, someone else comes in and sweeps away 80% of your nation. The betrayal had to feel so personal. And yet God's plan is unaltered. He's not caught by surprise. The intense disappointment that Rehoboam felt does nothing to deter the predetermined plan of the Lord. The betrayal that Rehoboam endured does not beset the plan of God. In fact, in the face of betrayal, the presence of the Lord is unmoved. And the same is true for you. One of the tensions that exists at Christmas is that while many around the world celebrate the hope and the joy of Christmas, others endure in silent disappointment. Christmas doesn't look like they wanted it to. Something happened that makes the celebration of the holiday seem empty or hollow. Instead of the wholesome wonder of the season that songs on the radio tell us about, they feel a hole in their heart or a wondering in their mind about why their circumstances have to be as they are. You might feel disappointed in something someone did to you. Disappointed that relational strain makes family gatherings difficult or even dreadful. Disappointed that a certain person is no longer present to celebrate with you. Disappointed because it feels like your life has fallen apart. Disappointment because a diagnosis of a particular sickness has intruded into your life completely unwelcome. Disappointed because the loss of a job has made the celebration of Christmas look differently than it has in years past. You might just plain feel like God has let you down. He didn't come through like you wanted him to. He didn't uphold what you felt like was his end of the bargain. And yet... 
in that baby in the manger, there's proof positive that God is with you despite your disappointment. Those seeming failures are not final. We know they aren't because God's with us. We know they aren't because those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, we know a day is coming when disappointments are going to be made right, when all broken things of our world are going to be put back together, when every tear is going to be wiped away, and when every frown is going to be turned into a joyful, eternal smile and shout of joy. We know that disappointment does not deter the direction of the Lord. It might catch us by surprise. It might rock our world for a little while. It might create a season of difficulty or a season of hurt, a season of acute pain. But it's done nothing to dissuade the Lord from the direction that he's headed. If you scan down the list a little ways, you bump into the name of Asa. There's a consistent refrain throughout the era of the Israelite kings that begins to play itself out with Asa, and it's that there's this half-hearted attempt at living faithfully before the God or before the Lord. Asa shows us that apathy does not alter the action of God. Throughout First and Second Kings, we read the same thing over and over and over: that such and such a king did so and so for the Lord, but did not tear down the high places. These individuals get close to being faithful and obedient, but then they come up short when they become apathetic about something the Lord is passionate about. They become apathetic about removing from their lives and from the lives of all the Israelite people the possibility to worship something other than the Lord. And that is something that God is passionate about. You will have no other gods before me. And yet their failure is not final because God is with us. Their apathy in those moments does not alter the Lord's action. And the same is true in your life. Your apathy toward God does nothing to alter the plans that he has. Our lukewarm living does not lessen his commitment to his will in your life or in someone else's life. I think it's easy for us to read through this list or think about sin and think about disappointment and think about recklessness and think about apathy and assume that what the Bible must be talking about in these instances are people who don't know the Lord. But what the Bible is talking about in these instances are God's people. Our apathy toward him as followers of Jesus Christ can be very strong at times. And we become totally disinterested in something that God is very passionate about. And even in those moments, the Lord is not knocked off of his throne. Our failure is not final. One more individual from the list. At the end of verse nine, we see the name Ahaz. He's the father of Hezekiah. Ahaz doesn't even pretend to worship the Lord. He has the priests of the Lord's temple make sacrifices to other gods. He uses the gold and the silver in the temple's treasury to pay a bribe to another nation. In an imitation of the religious practices of the nations that surrounded Israel, he even offers his own. He sacrifices his own child in a fire. What we see from Ahaz is that outright evil will not outshine the glory of the Lord. Failure is not final because God is with us. Even the outright evil that takes place during the reign of Asa cannot outshine the glory of the Lord. And the same is true in your life. The same is true in our time. We see outright evil all around us. 
It exists both in this country and in other places around the world. We're bombarded with it on the news, and sometimes it even comes crashing into our own lives. During the holiday season, I think we try to gloss over the reality of evil by just thinking happy thoughts. We try to have a Christmassy spirit or something like that, but evil is present and it isn't going anywhere. In fact, one of the great hopes of Christmas is that in Christ, we know that one day the glory of the Lord is going to completely overwhelm the presence of evil to the point that it will no longer exist at all. At Christmas, we celebrate the coming of Christ, but we also look forward to the coming of Christ. At his first coming, he came humbly his presence with us, paving the way for us to spend eternity with him. And at his second coming, he will come in full glory. His presence putting a final end to the very existence of evil. Failure is not final because God is with us. Look down at the very end of verse 11. Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. I want to point out two things that we need to keep in mind as we think about these names and the reality that our failure isn't final. And the first one is this, that we are absolutely responsible for our actions. Exile comes to Israel. They are ultimately held responsible for their sin and their actions, as is all of humanity throughout all of history. And yet none of their sin None of their action catches God off guard. None of it falls outside his sovereignty and the grace of his eternal will and plan. We could spend huge sums of time talking about how these two things fit together, but I believe firmly that the whole of scripture bears out the truth of these two realities. God is absolutely sovereign and we are absolutely responsible. We do not get a pass on the choices we make. We do not get a pass on the sin we partake in or the apathy we portray simply because God is bigger, greater, and so full of grace that he's able to not only work in and through, but also above all of our failures. You are responsible. I am responsible. The second thing to keep in mind is this. Flip over. I have to flip. Look down to verse 16. Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ. Everything ends in Jesus. As we work through this list of names, we have to keep in mind where it ends. It culminates in Jesus. It builds up to Jesus. It reaches its high point in Jesus. And that means that the great names and lives of the first grouping find their end in Jesus. No matter how great those individuals are, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Perez, Hezron, Aram, Amminadab, Nashon, Salmon, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, David. No matter how great and how wonderful they are, they pale in comparison. They are but a shadow of the greatness of Jesus Christ. Their great faith, their great obedience, their great lives are nothing compared to the greatness of the one that their lives gave rise to, and that's Jesus Christ. But the same is true on the other end of the spectrum, that the failures and the darkness of the second grouping of names also find their end. In Jesus. Failure is not final because God is with us. Sin does not stifle his sovereignty. Recklessness does not ruin his reign. Disappointment does not determine his direction. Apathy does not alter his action. And outright evil will not outshine his glory. God is with us. He is over us. He is beyond us. And though our actions matter and we will be held accountable for him or for them, they can do nothing to stop what he has determined to do since eternity. In fact, what we see in the coming of Jesus at Christmas is not only that God is able to work despite our failures, but that he is undaunted by them to the point of getting personally involved. 
Christmas displays to us that a holy God who can have nothing to do with sin takes sin so seriously that he put himself into the world in human flesh so as to completely triumph over it. The failures of our lives and of this world are not final because God is with us. And in being with us, he took those failures upon himself at the cross and then left them buried in the tomb when he walked out in triumph. How are we to respond to the grace that's just dripping from these middle verses of Matthew's genealogy. I want to offer briefly here a little bit of encouragement from a portion of the Christmas story that we're likely familiar with. It's found in Matthew chapter 2, so if you look over to there. I'm going to read the first 15 verses of Matthew chapter 2, but I'm going to read them twice. There are three kingly figures present in Matthew chapter 2. There's Jesus, the true king. There's King Herod, who is of a Jewish descent and a Jewish upbringing, but was appointed the Roman king of Judea. And then there are these wise men. The word there is magi. There's some controversy over how it is that you translate magi and what was a magi. Some people think they were maybe astrologers or some sort of uh, kind of mystics from an Eastern nation, but others hold to the fact that they were kings, royalty, princes, And as we jump into this, note that everything that happens in Matthew chapter 2 happens because Jesus has been born, because God is with us. Here's what it says. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. Last week, we looked at Mary. When Mary has her interaction with the angel Gabriel, do you remember what it said about her? She was deeply troubled. Why was Mary deeply troubled? Well, she was deeply troubled because she came into, the contact, into contact with the holiness of God in the presence of this angel, and her understanding her sin left her in a place of deep anguish. Herod's deeply troubled here, but it's for an entirely different reason. It's because Herod understands that there's a king that's been born, There's a struggle now for the throne. Who's in charge? Me or Jesus? And there's a wrestling that has to take place. Our failures before the Lord often stem from challenging for his throne. There's a similar struggle in the heart of every human being. There's a throne in your life. We commonly refer to it as the heart. And there's a battle for who's going to sit on that throne. You or Christ. Because only one person can be there. There is not room for two. And so Herod does what we all do when we feel challenged for the throne. Let's keep reading. He assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where Christ would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. First, Herod gathers around him a group of people and he's hoping to find a loophole. Is this baby actually the king? Is this actually the Christ? Maybe I can get some people around me who will tell me that Jesus isn't who he says he is. That might be you this morning. 
that you have felt in your heart at times that there is a wrestling for the throne there and you've heard this message of the gospel that Jesus is the savior, he is the king and yet you just can't quite get yourself into a place where you're comfortable with that. And so what you've done is you've surrounded yourself with an echo chamber of sorts of people who will tell you that Jesus either doesn't matter or isn't who he said he was or was merely just some good teacher that you can give a little bit of credence to if you'd like to, should you choose. That's where Herod starts. Let me gather around all the smart people in my kingdom and get them to tell me that maybe this king isn't who he says he is. But unfortunately, they don't play along. They tell him exactly where that king was going to be born and that he will be a ruler and that he will shepherd Israel. So then Herod goes on. He secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. That was a lie. After hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until uh, it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through the prophet Jeremiah uh, was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. Herod decides that he'll do whatever it takes to maintain his place on the throne, no matter who gets hurt in the process. He has all the baby boys in the region killed. They're just collateral damage to him being able to sit on the throne. I feel safe in assuming this morning that the people in this room wouldn't go to that extreme. But I also feel safe in assuming that we will make decisions that might hurt other people in order to feel like we're the ones that are still in control of our lives. We will engage in sinful, apathetic, reckless, sometimes outright evil activity in order to preserve our place on the throne. That is our sin nature. That is what lives inside each and every one of us. There's another group of kings in this passage, though. The wise men. They travel this great distance because they've heard of Jesus, the true king. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him, they said. Then in verse 9, after hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They don't want to depose the king. They want to adore him. 
They're overjoyed at the sight of him. They bow before him. They make the very best of what they have available present to him. They're willing to go against the ruler of the day in order to honor him. See, if our failures before the Lord often stem from challenging for his throne, our peace before the Lord stems from bowing before his throne. In response to God being with us, I see two options. You can fight for that throne and allow the carnage to be what it is, or you can cede the throne to him and let him and his peace rule. You can feel threatened by the presence of the king, or you can feel overjoyed by the presence of the king. You can be prideful and fight for your place on the throne, or you can humbly and joyfully bow before him as he sits on it. You can take what you have and use it to stop him regardless of who might be caught in the crossfire or you can make available to him the very best of what you have to give. You can try to deny his presence on the throne or you can commit yourself to defying the norms of our day in order to honor him. Let me end here. You can trust the goodness of his reign as king because at the height of his story, he ascended not only to a throne, but also to a cross. And he ascended there on our behalf. And there on the cross, he displayed once and for all that failure is not final. There on the cross, he took upon him the failures of all of human history, though he had none in and of himself, and he bore the punishment for them all. In the manger and on the cross, we see with startling clarity that failure is not final because God is with us. In both of those places, we see that his presence with us enables us to give him the throne joyfully, to give of our lives to singing, all glory be to Christ the King, Emmanuel, God with us from the beginning to the end. Let's pray and then we'll worship together. God, we praise you because in the birth of Christ, we see that you got personally involved in the failures of humanity. God, that you were not distant and set apart and shaking your head at us in disappointment, but instead, God, you entered in personally in order to put an end to those failures. God, you came in the flesh in order to triumph over those failures. God, that whoever puts their faith in you might have all of their sin forgiven and stand right before you. God, we cannot do that on our own. It required that you come in the flesh. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. God, we can either challenge you for that position or we can bow joyfully before you. God, we can either use what we have to try to uselessly and unsuccessfully nudge you off of your plan for all of the universe, Lord, or we can take the best of what we have, humbly offer it to you, and allow you to use it for your good and for the expanse of your kingdom. God, we can either try to attract the glory to ourselves or we can bow before the throne like the Magi and declare all glory be to Christ our King. God, I pray this Christmas season, Lord, that we would joyfully worship you as you sit on the throne. We pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.
Let's sing together. You can stand up.